Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 430. If I'm always working from the perspective of I don't want to fuck this up or I'm afraid to make a mistake, then I'm never going to reach my potential for you. You know, so like the things that we try to make sure that everybody's working with is, you know, try your hardest with the best intentions. But when you screw something up, like, holy shit, raise your hand and say, I screwed something up, you know, because we all make mistakes. I do it all the time, but I make mistakes trying really hard. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today, and you'll get three months Free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. 89% of guests research a restaurant online before dining out. Your website is your first impression. So answer me this question honestly. What does your website say about your restaurant? Also, websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that can help you drive revenue. Head over to getbento.com and see why thousands of restaurants trust Bento Box with their websites. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you can save up to $1,500 on initial setup. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Justin Severino. Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today. oh fuck yeah i am <laughs> yes uh justin severino is a graduate of the pennsylvania culinary institute uh severino made his way west to santa cruz california where he worked for many staples in the industry uh and opened severino's community butcher he would go on to serve as executive chef uh, at Element Cuisine and Sous Chef at 11 Restaurant in Pittsburgh and in 2011 opened Cure with national recognition and accolades and in 2015 he opened uh, Morcilla. Yep. Yes, crushed it with the same result. Uh, and man, I'm so honored to be here. Uh, countless James Beard Awards, uh, just a recognition from all over the place and uh, I'm sure you we're going to learn a lot from this conversation, but before we really dive into who you are and what you're all about, let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for a chef? Oh, wow. Um, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, for me, it's all about, I don't know about a mantra or a quote, but so much of what we do from start to finish is all about like the concept of team and refining what that means and how we continue to grow as a team. I mean, I can pretty much relate everything, failure, success, all back to how we act together as a team or not as a team inside the restaurant. So what is your concept of team? I'm curious. Um, you know, uh, I came up in some like an, maybe like an older generation of restaurants. Um, and not that I'm saying anything, nothing negative about it, but, um, one of the things I learned from working at uh, really high-end uh, 
re- restaurants in California um, for my for myself was, <clears throat> you know, if I could get if I was treated differently, I would be a more su- successful employee for you, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, I work for a lot of people. I respect all of them, um, but that that was kind of like for me the thing that stuck with me after every experience in every restaurant. Um, and it was just you know, my thought was when I get the chance, I want to treat people differently. I want to cultivate an environment where people are expected to treat people with respect. Uh, people are expected to, uh, actually enjoy their job, mm. um, because it's not prison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can go somewhere else and you can find another job. Um, and that's really, I think, you know, especially now, um, after opening a second restaurant and, you know, having to work at both of them. And ha- I, I find that what I do more than anything else is, work on that uh, i'm like the team leader i i work on more like culture morale um you know always refining what that team means to each individual restaurant I, and i find honestly like when the team is firing on on all cylinders then the food is the best it can possibly be the customer experience is the best you know like if i have a team of people that actually enjoy their jobs they're they're bought in and passionate about the mission of the restaurant and they treat each other really well and they're all working together every day all day long to succeed then the customer doesn't even know but 100 percent, the the biggest benefit of that is the customer experience mm. you know when you when you're being waited on by someone who clearly loves their job and mm-hmm. likes working with the people around them like that's the best case scenario. Yeah. It's contagious. And the customer is the last person that catches the bug. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, maybe even goes beyond that. Who knows? Maybe they go home and they like see their kids and they're like, oh, the best meal ever. Everybody, you know, maybe I mean, I'm taking it too far. But <laughs> no, you're right. And when the, when the other side of it is true, you know, when you work in a, let's say a fear driven yeah. fear, fear is the motivator yep. in the kitchen um, and or in the front of the house. Then I've always found that as my me myself as a cook um you know if if you treat me like an i'm an idiot then i'm just an idiot Mm -hmm. there's nothing i'm going to even try to do to prove to you that i'm not right if i'm always working from the perspective of i don't want to fuck this up or i'm afraid to make a mistake then i'm never going to reach my potential for Mm you you know so like the things that we try to make sure that everybody's working with is you know try your hardest with the best intentions but when you screw something up, like, holy shit, raise your hand and say, I screwed something up. Yeah. You know, because we all make mistakes. I do it all the time, but I make mistakes trying really hard. Yeah. I love this, Chef. We're only, we're only seven minutes into the sucker and you're dropping some great knowledge on us. Uh, so let's go back to where it started for you. You went to culinary school, so you must have known at a pretty young age that this is what you wanted to do. So when did you know? Um, <clears throat> I grew up in a, a large Italian-American family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have two brothers, uh, mom and dad, but like... I have my dad has a huge family They uh, they all live in the same community. Um, my mom uh, cooked us dinner like every single day for the most part. She sent me to school with lunch, like through high school mm-hmm. and people made fun of me. You know, they're like, man, it's pizza day. What are you doing? I'm like, man, I got like, yes, I got my, your pizza. <laughs> I got my mom's homemade like cucumber sandwich and, the, and it's great. Oh, some pasta bazool. Leave me alone. <laughs> my, yeah. My grandfather was a butcher. <clears throat> And, you know, made wine in his basement as a hobby. My grandmother was a lunch lady. Um, so food was like always the most important thing in my family. You know, it didn't really matter what else was going on, how crazy we all might be. 
we always sat down and ate dinner like at least five days a week. Um, and I would bring friends over. It was a thing, you know, we had always had other, it was always, there was very regularly other people at our dinner table. Um, and then I didn't go to college. I went to work for my dad. He owns a construction company. I moved into a house with some friends. Uh, and pretty much immediately I was like, wait a minute, I cannot eat fast food. I can't eat restaurant food. Like, and I had like always been interested in cooking. I'd always paid attention to what my family was doing with food. Um, so I, and then while I was doing that, I was working for my dad and we were, I was working on the road basically. So I was staying in hotels Mm -hmm. and you know, then I was doing that five days a week and then coming home to this house I live in with my friends. And I want to say like two or three weeks into that, I I, I made a conscious decision to stop it. And I talked my dad into, instead of renting hotels to rent like a furnished apartment and that had a kitchen. And I, I worked with my mom a little bit on prepping food that we froze and I took to work with us for the week. And then I would get out of work a little bit early every day and I would go, like basically prep dinner for the crew. And that was like the first year my dad owned his own business. So the crew was my dad, my brother, two of my cousins and my uncle. We, I think we randomly had another non relative involved, but (laughs) that was even, that was great. Right. Cause we all had the sense of home, Mm -hmm. you know, we'd work our asses off. We'd be in the middle of nowhere, somewhere in the tri-state area of Ohio um, in the winter time. And we'd get to go back to this apartment and, all sit down and be a family and, and eat food. And, um, somewhere inside of that, I decided there is no way in hell I am going to work construction in Ohio for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. Nothing against like, clearly it's a part of my blood. Yeah. Like I still work construction for myself all the time. I'm so happy that I have the skills, but, um, I just didn't, I was, I just didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. And, uh, I, I brought it up to my dad I said, Hey, you know, there's no fucking way I'm doing this the rest of my life. You know, I, I remember vividly the job that we were doing when I made this decision and we were diverting a river in Columbus, Ohio in the depths of the winter. So I was spending the entire day standing in water in hip waders in the winter time. And we were t- making a river that like made a bend go straight. <laughs> and I'm like, this is not what I, so my dad looked at me and said, well, go to college. Yeah. He's like, do it right now. He's like, how old were you at this time? Uh, I was 19. Going into 20? I was 19, yeah. So <clears throat> the only thing I could think of was that I was really enjoyed doing was cooking. Yeah. But like it was, and so I had a friend that was living here in Pittsburgh. And I want to say like the, that weekend I came to Pittsburgh, um, toured the Culinary Institute, took an in- entrance exam, passed and signed up for classes. Okay. It was like the best bad decision I've ever made in my life. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I ended up starting school like three months later, four months later. And, uh, my life has been completely dedicated to learning more about how to cook and how to run restaurants and the cultures behind food and food history since the day I made that bad decision. Um, and that, and that's, I, I think that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I'm really tempted to, to dive into why you think it's a bad decision. Uh, no, at the moment, at the moment, I knew nothing about it. Okay. I'd never worked in a restaurant. I didn't know. I, I didn't even. All I all I wanted to do was stop working construction. Yeah. And it was just like, oh, I can do that. I'm going to go check it out. I'm in. There was no thought put into it at all. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, if you yeah. wanted to, if you could go back in time, would you have gone to school? Uh, culinary school? Yeah. I did. 
Okay. Yeah, I came. No, knowing what you know now. Oh no, no, no. Would you I, uh, have gone you know, back to school. I think for me it was necessary. Okay. Uh, I don't think for everyone it is. Um, I think I can identify the people that work for me that don't need to go to culinary school or do, but it was a way out for me. It okay. was a. It was more than an education. It was. Uh, it was moving to a new city. It was yeah. my own apartment. It was. Mm-hmm. It was me starting a new life. Okay. And you know, I think that culinary school was a fantastic. Um, experience for me. So was that why it was necessary? Because it was uh, going to support you to get away. Well, yeah, and it, I had all the support in my wor- in the world. Like my, yeah. I, my family's great. Um, okay, it wasn't that. I was a personal thing. Like I needed, I needed to leave. Okay, I wanted to move away. I wanted to travel. And you know, culinary school for me was a great support system for all that. You know, yeah. it was like the community of young cooks um, really, you know, inspired me to continue to you know stay on the path. Awesome. So you went to culinary school. Uh, you graduate in 99. Uh, how were you living intentionally at this point? Like, Where were you? What kind of mind space were you in? Were you, did you have a path, a, a direction, or were you just like, okay, now what? My goal was to, <clears throat> my goal was to travel, okay. um, and I, I wanted to go to California. So um, that's what we did. Yeah. Um, I'm good. Thanks. So uh, you went out west, California, and you're working in some of the best kitchens uh, in the nation. Uh, David Kinch, uh, Messina. Am I saying that correctly? Messina? Messina? Oh, Manresa. Manresa. Yeah. Thank you. I'm the worst at saying things. Um, so what were some of the things you're learning surrounding yourself with some of these mentors? Can you reflect back at that time to some of the biggest lessons, some of the biggest takeaways in those kitchens? Yeah. Well, my goal was <clears throat> um, my goal when I lived out west was, and I lived there for like eight years seven years, whatever. My goal was to, at each job that I had to work there for about a year, over a year and gain the skills to get a better job. Right. And I did that. And I took about two months off in between each job and traveled and, you know, got in the woods and explored the North West, which was awesome. Um, so yeah, I was like, every job was a stepping stone for me. Mm-hmm. And that was my goal. And I went out and uh, my first job was a place called Manresa. Or yep. no, sorry, no, sorry, Bernard. It was Marinas at Bernardus Lodge. Okay. And Bill Fuller hooked me up with that job. I was working as a cook at Casbah here in Pittsburgh. Oh, that's right. We totally skipped over that. Yeah. Sorry, you were working for Bill Fuller, who was just recently on the show. Yeah, and he's while a, you're in school, right? Yeah, he, he was like honestly like. Well, so I'll tell the story, and it'll answer the question yeah, about Bill. Um, I worked for I I did my internship for my culinary internship at Casbah. I worked at Casbah for I think about a year and a half. Um, my wife, girlfriend at the time, wife now, um, she got an internship in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky. And I moved there. We moved there together. I had a shitty job. And I ended up moving back um, And because I loved working for Bill so so much. And I lived in a friend's attic. And um, I told Bill that you know he wanted me to move back and work at Casbah again, and uh, I was like, yeah, I really want to travel. Mm-hmm. And he's like, where are you thinking about going? And we were gonna, we, I think we were planning on moving to this little island uh, in Florida. And Bill was like, why would you do that? <laughs> he's like, Florida is a place you vacation in. Florida is yeah. not a place you like go and Get have a career yeah, as a yeah. cook. And I was like, well, then where should I go? And he hooked me up with this guy named Matt Malay, who was a chef for the Big Burrito Group and from Pittsburgh, who was working at. Bernardus Lodge and um, I gave I gave him a call had a conversation he passed me on to Cal Staminoff who was the chef and uh, I want to say within 
two months. I, I literally had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't even know I was moving to the most beautiful place I've ever, ever been to in my life. Awesome. We moved to Monterey, California, um, like two months later. So I, I want to try to pull some nuggets uh, from these mentors you had. Reflecting back at uh, Bill Fuller, what did he teach you? Uh, I'm already picking up on a few things I'll, I'll highlight, but I want to hear from you. Like, What were the big lessons you got from him? So when I got out to California um, and went to work at this place, Bernardo's Lodge, which is a great restaurant, um, but it didn't, it didn't satisfy me because I was comparing everything to Casbah. And, you know, when I worked at Casbah, Bill was actually the chef Mm -hmm. Um, and he pushed people and he was, uh, he was a team captain and he motivated people and he was, he worked his ass off. He led by example. Um, And that's what I really need. Like I, you know, I I grew up in a blue collar family. Um, Hard work, I think is like work ethic is like the most important thing to me. Um, And that's what Bill taught people. So how did he push you in a way that wasn't like... Like outside of like literally pushing me? Well, like in a way that wasn't <laughs> uh, demeaning or like battering, but like in a way that like lifted you up, almost pushing you up, not necessarily pushing you down. Yeah. I mean, I think what he was is probably still really... Or what he was really good at then, and I'm sure is still really good at now, was identifying within me that I, I was hungry and wanted it. Mm. Why you know is it so important? I mean, because he took interest, man. He mm. he zoned in on it, dude. Uh, you're hitting such a vein with me right now because I've seen this time and time again with people like yourself and the the power. If you're in a position where you're mentoring other people and you're in charge of other people and they're good at something, they have the drive, they have the, the skill. Let them know mm-hmm. because you can. If you lean into that, like they will take it to the next level, and that's, in my opinion, how people find their passion is by outside forces encouraging them and acknowledging what they're what they're what they are and pushing people to find their limits so important i right? love it because you never can break through or get past yeah. what your limit is unless you actually find it mm-hmm. unless someone pushes you to it i've actually got a in my work experience leading up to this and i have so many of those examples that are like monumental in my career mm-hmm. and i you know now working for myself <clears throat> i find them all the time they're just it's like different it's harder it's a different way of dealing with it um when you know you don't have someone like your boss expecting things out of you. It's, you know, it's, I find it like working for myself. I, it happens to me more often, you know, cause I just expect the shitload yeah. out of myself. And yeah. then I got these, all these people that I think expect a lot out of me yeah. also. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, Bill pushed, pushed me to my limits. Yeah. And, and when I got out to California, I was, wasn't, I wasn't satisfied by how I was being, I wasn't being pushed, mm-hmm. you know, it was like a little bit too laid back for me. Um, I ended up, I ended up finding that in other places. Okay. So the other, the big thing I want, before we move away from Bill, I want to highlight from the, his influence and just in general about what he does, uh, even though this is your time to shine, but we have to go there real quick. Um, take care of the next generation people. And it's almost a a mentality of trying to push people out of your restaurants. Uh, like in a sense of go on and do other things. Like your job as a restaurateur, as a restaurant owner is to create opportunities for other people. And it seems counterintuitive because you need those good people to be excellent, but it will come back and serve you some other way. I mean, how, 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 how do you think it's served Bill? Oh, I think, I mean, probably great. I mean, recommendations, right? I mean, like you take, you get, you're taken care of and people come to you for advice. Like, and you're in this area, like go work for Bill. Like, I mean, it that's all kind of like, around. I mean, is your, is your legacy to make money and put it in the bank? Or is your legacy to like encourage people to have exactly what you have? Mm. You know, I mean, we do it all day long. You know, like I feel like the way that we train our cooks is to train them to be mm-hmm. chefs. 
Okay. You know, if you work at Cure for a restaurant, I'm not saying everyone has the skills to be the chef at Cure Restaurant, but we've tried our hardest to teach you how to be the chef at Cure Restaurant. Okay. So, um, man, I, I think we're probably already at 20 minutes into this recording. Yeah, we are. So we got to try to move on. Um, so you're, you're working for some great people. Uh, you, you opened the butcher shop. Any big lessons uh, from some of these mentors you were working for f- that you want to share with us before you move on to the, what that experience of opening your first place? Was yeah, like? yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I work, there's a couple of people I work for that like I really honor um, the time they gave me. Bill was definitely the first and really important to me. Um, this other guy named Walter Mansky. Okay. Um, I worked for him at a restaurant called Boucher and there's three restaurants, Boucher, uh, La Auberge Carmel and Cantonata de Luca. Um, and Walter now owns uh Republique in Hollywood and Petty Cash. And I think he owns like 14 restaurants and the f- he just opened a restaurant in LA called Siri Siri. And I think he owns like a sh- ton of restaurants in the Philippines, but that guy did the same thing. Walter is probably, to date, the most intense, passionate cook I've ever met in my life. Um, and he's super humble about it. And he he's just works his ass off. Um, and when I went to work at Boucher, I didn't have the skills to work at Boucher. Okay. Um, but he, he saw how bad I wanted it. I was staging there like once a week for pro- on one of my days off uh, for probably a year. Wow. Like they were like counting on me. Um, and, uh, Boucher was a little tiny kitchen, probably smaller than cures. And, uh, you know, Walter was, you know, Walter had previous to working at opening Boucher was a chef at, uh, like an iconic restaurant in LA patina. And he worked in Paris for a, a long Ducasse. He worked in Monaco for a long Ducasse. I mean, he's like crazy technique trained, <laughs> as, but, Walter pushed Walter made me find what my limit. Okay. You know, Walter pushed me so hard, but with positivity and like the reward was knowledge and he didn't give up on me ever. Right. And then to the degree of like, no, you need to, you need to clean the hood every single day and you need to clean it harder and faster than I do. Mm. Cause he's not the, he was never the guy that, you know, it's time to clean up and he, he goes in the office, but he just drew, drove us he was the first guy i saw when i got to work and when service was over he was the first guy breaking down a station Mm -hmm. and you know he he scrubbed that kitchen himself um and there's a lot more that he taught me in there i mean i i probably learned more about cooking from him than anyone else and his techniques probably shine through in my cuisine more than anyone else i ever worked for it's just really smart methodical menu writing uh what to do with produce uh, it's just he's just a genius so aside from the food and what he taught you with food and technique how did he teach you about what to be and who to be he was always fair you know he expected more out of me than maybe anyone else i'd ever worked for but he was also very fair and he was also right there next to me doing the same thing mm. he was never not in that kitchen you know it was like one of the biggest honors of my career leading up until opening this place was i started my butcher shop in santa cruz and uh walter when when Walter went on vacation, he would call me to cover his ass, you know? And like that was probably like absolutely at that time was the biggest honor, right? Like he's like, I don't really know anyone else that I don't know is dumb enough or willing or, (laughs) but you know, I would, I would, this is after he opened up La Berge Carmel and he worked a station in that kitchen and every kitchen that, um, I worked with him and he, 
he worked a station. He was the chef at the restaurant. And um, it wasn't even like he had his sous chef float over to work his station. Like he had me come in and work his station. Um, so that was pretty great. That's awesome. So, okay. Uh, when did you start getting the vision of opening your own place? And uh, what did that vision look like? And what, what was it like going through the process? <clears throat> so if you're not worried about time, I'm not worried about time. I'm not worried about time. Okay, so you don't need to rush <laughs> okay. the conversation okay, if you cool. don't want to. Cool. So, um, all right, so I was working at Boucher. So that being said, is there something that we that you want to share with yeah, us before we Yeah, I mean, I think it all leads into this. Yeah, yeah, so go for it. I was working at Boucher for Walter, and I'd been there for about a year and a half or more. And, um, all right, so, you know, you're a, guy, a kid from Ohio. You moved to California, and, um, you know, what you know, what you want to know about food is that you know you you want to cook awesome food, but then you move to a place like Monterey, and you're really interested in being outside, and you know you like to get into the ocean, and you realize that food is growing all around you, and that's not the case in Ohio, right? Where how I grew up, you know, like so all of a sudden the reality of food was something totally different to me, right? I'm forging mushrooms, I'm you know harvesting seafood off of rocks, um, and there's like six farmers markets a week. So we're, you know, when we want fish, we go down to the wharf and we buy fish. When we want vegetables, we go to the farmer's market and buy vegetables. You start to have relationships with the farmers. Um, and then you work for a guy like Walter, who is super passionate about buying local food. And, you know, part of working for him is going to the farmer's market with him. So there's this kind of moment in my career where I, I became aware of what food actually was. Right? Okay. I never, I'd never thought about it that way before. I was probably 22 Okay. You know what I mean? So how did you look at food before that point? I, you know, I always loved food, but I don't ever, I never thought about where it came from. You know what I mean? Like my, my family had gardens, you know, we bought from farmers, you know, we grew up in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, but like, I would just like professionally, I'd never really thought about it. So I started like educating myself on it. I started to like, I read the Amenovar's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. I started like watching you know, YouTube videos of, um, Joel Salatin speak and the things I started to learn definitely changed my perspective on what a chef is supposed to be. So what was a chef or what is a chef? So, supposed to be? you know, I, all right. So a couple things, right. I'm, I learned about, you know, basically it was an animal based thing. I felt I, I, for some reason I really took focus on it and I thought it was really tragic. What, meat as a commodity is, you know, we don't need to get into the details of that. Um, and then I started to see these things, you know, practically in my job in some situations. Like I learned, I remember one day before I went to work, I learned that the sack of liquid on the breast of a chicken is a, is a blister because those chickens are genetically modified and they grow so fast Mm. that they can't actually hold their own weight up. So they drag their breasts across the ground and it's actually a a blister. And, um, it wasn't normal practice for, for us to have those chickens in the restaurant, but I think we had something going on like offsite and we had some random chickens and like, I went to work that day and like I was cutting through them, you know, and I just, uh, in a couple of other situations, Once like, you that, know, you can't, unknow. yeah. Yeah. And I'd been there for long enough. Um, I gave notice, uh, I stopped eating meat. Mm. Um, I needed to take a rest from fine dining restaurant, but I, I stopped eating meat for a better part of a year. Um, I went to work, I started cooking, like vegan meals on Tuesdays out of a little vegetarian cafe in Pacific Grove, California. And then I was, I worked part-time as a pizza cook at the Big Sur bakery. Uh, and I kept in contact with Walter. Um, and you know, I, about a 
a little bit less than a year into it, I started, I, and I was making relationships with farmers. So I was going to farmers markets, um, introducing myself to people. I was spending time on farms. Um, I spent a, a bunch of slaughter chicken slaughter days out at this one farm called TLC ranch. Um, and at some, at some point Walter and I had a conversation and he asked me what I was doing and I, and, or if I was eating meat again. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I am. And, and he goes, well, you know, I know, I know this guy in Los Gatos who is, I just talked to him and he's looking for a cook. And I, I thought about you and this was Manresa. And, uh, at that point, Manresa was like every cook in the Bay area was like knew that Manresa was the next yeah. great thing. Um, but it wasn't yet. And, um, uh, and the chef de cuisine at the time was Jeremy Fox, um, who probably is one of one of the, my relationship with him at Manresa was fantastic. He, but I ended up going to Manresa stage there for about a week and they offered me the job to basically like cut and cook all the meat. Okay. Um, and it was great because Manresa like their mission is all about the things I was trying to learn about. And you know, they definitely knew a lot more about it than I did. And, but it was, you know, at one point I think Manresa partnered with a biodynamic farm, mm-hmm. you know, like they took it incredibly serious. Um, so I worked there um for a i don't know two years or so and somewhere in there jeremy and i jeremy was already playing around with pigs and there were small pigs on the menu so i got to butcher a bunch of like 40 pound pigs every week but jeremy and i really wanted to get into bigger pigs so we started buying in bigger pigs um and uh at some point you know i I needed to move on and but i was still working at manresa and the farmer that i was i was doing chicken slaughters with he wanted to grow pigs and I wanted to butcher pigs. And uh, so he started growing pigs. And instead of sending those pigs to the USDA slaughter facility to get cut and, and wrapped, I did it out of the back of my friend's restaurant in Monterey. So it started, I do like a pig every other week on one of my days off. Um, and then his demand grew to like, it was two pigs every other week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it grew to the point where uh, I quit my job at Manresa <laughs> and decided I was going to like, you know, I was like, screw it. I'm going to go. I'm going to be a butcher. It was like really terrible business planning. <laughs> you know, like I traded in my car for a, a Ford van. I want to get into that, but I'm really curious about something before we move on. And um, what was it about? What did you discover that made you eat meat again? What um, was it that well, made- I didn't stop eating meat because I didn't want to eat meat. Because mm-hmm. um, like I said, I, 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 I think I could win a meatball eating competition between <laughs> you and you and I, and maybe multiple other people like, um, I stopped eating meat because I just wanted to learn about it and I wanted to just reset and um, figure out a way how to work it into my life personally and professionally. Yeah. And I don't want to get on too much of a tangent here, but I mean, the issue isn't with meat growers and farmers. The issue is with the broken system. Yeah. And there's a lot of people. I mean, I, I know people who say I don't eat meat because the, the system's broke or like it's what, what the, they do to these animals. I'm like, that's one scenario. There's a lot of people doing it right with great practices where these animals have one bad day in their yep. life and it's not even that bad. It's over like that. And we need also we need to support these farmers who are doing it right. And, and the reality of that is every dollar that you spend to a farmer with ethics is a dollar that yep. the other side doesn't get. Every yep. pig that I buy from Footprints Farm is a 
pig that doesn't have to exist mm-hmm. in confinement. Yeah. You know, and that's a fact. Yeah. You know, and, um, and it, it's so empowering to know that we can change things like at the snap of a finger. If tomorrow we stop giving money to the people that have the bad practices, uh, and we can do it and things will change overnight. If people all together stop making those purchases. Yeah. So I just want to put some emphasis on that. We don't have to spend too much time here, uh, going on to, uh, okay, you sell your car to get some money. To yeah. Long story short, I'll, I'll try work. to condense this, uh, <laughs> I, I opened a business the, the like the <laughs> the way you're not supposed to open a business. You know, I I uh, and I didn't even have a business. Like I didn't even legally have a business. I was just like willy nilly cutting pigs and putting it in cryovac bags in the back of a friend's restaurant. And then that turned into doing farmers markets. That got me into a communal like a shared communal kitchen. Um, and we went from custom butchering very basic butcher packages for people that were sharing whole and half pigs to us doing like six Bay area farmers markets. And, um, you know, we, that, that went, that exploded really quickly. Um, and then, so we did that for about seven years. Community butcher was a thing for about two years. And at the end of it, what I wanted to do was open cure restaurant. Um, I did a lot of work on acquiring, uh, people to invest, um, I was, I literally thought I'd found the space. Um, so, so you say at the end of it, did you, cho- did you choose to discontinue or was the business not sustainable? Did it um, go under? If the business was actually fine. Okay. Um, we, my, we, my wife and I supported ourselves. We had three employees. Um, we didn't make a lot of money, but we didn't lose a lot of money either. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we would have kept at it, that, that business would have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. It was just a two year old business mm-hmm. with no cash. So, but when kind of when it got to the point for me to sign a lease, I just couldn't do it. I mean, leading up to that point, I would have told if someone would ask me if I would ever leave California, I would have said, no, hell no. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but for some reason, like getting into a situation where I was going to sign a 12 year lease, made me think about things I hadn't thought before. Like I have grandparents I don't see very often. I have mm-hmm. parents, I have brothers, I've got nephews. Um, I've got my oldest best friends. Um, and, uh, you know, the cost of doing business out there is crazy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, we, my wife and I had that conversation and literally we moved to Pittsburgh. Awesome. So what was one big lesson? If you could just share one lesson from opening your first business, uh, hindsight being 2020, anything you do differently, anything you did right that we can share with us? Yeah. I mean, I think morally that restaurant was, or not the restaurant, the butcher shop was like ethic, ethically the pinnacle of how I bought and sold food. I mean, I knew um, because we did farmers markets, I bought almost all of our ingredients from farmers and the product line was inspired by those ingredients. Um, but what I, I'd say that the biggest lesson that I learned was it doesn't matter if you make, if you're the best butcher in the world, or if you make the best charcuterie in the world, it doesn't matter if you can't make money. Right. And that's an argument that people like to have, right? It's not all about money. Well, yeah, it is. I well, mean, it's the, f- the fuel that drives. The yeah. Like- and it's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like to do it, to get rich, mm-hmm. but what I learned was that I was so focused on the food. I was so focused on like the ethics of the food, um, that I didn't put enough focus on to the dollars and cents of it. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was the biggest 
lesson I've ever, I've basically ever taught. It was the most expensive lesson I've yeah. ever taught myself. So was it with the costing? Did you not have enough margins? Would you have created more margins specifically like real quick? What would you have done differently? I just didn't have the time, mm. you know, like I didn't have any more. I didn't have time to even think about it. I was so overwhelmed with what my hands were doing um, and planning out the creative next steps mm-hmm. to what the next product was going to be. And, and a lot of situations teaching myself how to make charcuterie or learning how to butcher things better that I just, I didn't have the space in my head to even take it on. Gotcha. You know, it was like a second thought instead of the first thought. Okay. But I was, I was also like 24 years old. So yeah, 25. So you- which is pretty impressive to open a, a business at that age, especially with a restaurant. Or, um, stu- or stupid. Well, you never know. But you know, it's, <laughs> that, that's where you grow. That's where you learn by pushing yeah. yourself. And if you didn't have the mentors to push you, you would have never gotten to that point so quickly. It's so powerful. Uh, okay, so you, you, you close the uh, Butcher 2007 uh, because you have the vision to open Cure. Uh, what was that vision? And what things were you doing intentionally to make that vision come to reality? But first, we got to take a break to thank our sponsors. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like a foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. All right, guys, it's time to get real and answer this question honestly. Does the quality of your website match the quality of your restaurants? If the answer is no, you need to do something about it because 89% of your guests will go to your website before going to your restaurant. So you've got to make sure you're bringing it to all aspects of your business. And this is where Bento Box comes in. Not only will Bento Box help you deliver your brand and your story online, but it will help you leverage the full potential of the internet because websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that help you drive revenue. With Bento Box, easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events, plus way more directly from your website. Find out why Bento Box is trusted by thousands of restaurants around the world, including past and future guests like Suvla, Pizza Emily, 11 Madison Park, The Meatball Shop, and more. Head to getbento.com and make sure you mention Restaurants Unstoppable to get up to $1,500 off your initial setup. All right, so what was the vision for Cure and what did you do? How did you start living intentionally to make that vision come to reality? So one of the things I learned at the butcher shop was I really missed 
putting food on plates for people. And that all goes back to the reasons why I started to cook. Like, and I will say this a hundred times over the most important thing about what we do here at cure restaurant or at Marcia restaurant is make people feel comfortable. Um, give them like a nice, warm, comfy place to sit down, but it's not necessarily our focus is not about us. It's about what happens when those people sit down at a table, because that's the always been the most important thing about food. You know, I, I don't think food is the most important thing in a restaurant. Clearly we try really hard to make the best food mm-hmm. that we can. Um, and I don't think it's about the chef, you know I mean? Like, I think you need to take those things out of it and to allow people to have a great experience at a table. Uh, and that's what I missed. You know, I really missed cooking. I was still cooking. I was cooking every day. You know, a, a real shaku- whole hog charcuterie program is a lot of cooking, especially if you're, you know, you're making your own ingredients that go into your charcuterie. Uh, I just met, I missed the community aspect of it. I, you know, I missed like, I missed working in kitchens. I missed like the, the team environment, you know, the camaraderie of, of working in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what I wanted to get to get at. And also the financial side of it, you know, like making charcuterie for retail sales, buying a whole pig, turning it into charcuterie for retail sales, your margin is a lot smaller than it would be if you make charcuterie and put it on a plate yeah. with some pickles and mustard. And I really wanted to, I wanted to do that to support my love for butchering and charcuterie. Mm-hmm. I knew that if I could sell food on plates, it could make my margin better and would make more sense for me to butcher pigs and make it into charcuterie. So were you doing charcuterie at the butchery or were you just yeah. butchering? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I taught myself charcuterie yeah. there. Okay. I mean, previous to that, I mean, my experience with charcuterie was making pate and I think I made, I was making some salamis. Uh, some force meats and stuff like that? In my, at my house. Okay. Um, I really didn't know enough to open up the butcher shop, but I like I was so dedicated to it that you know I, I basically taught myself charcuterie. Every master was once a disaster. Right? <laughs> yeah, so sure. <laughs> okay, so how so you're you're moving towards opening cure? You have to get the money. Uh, you didn't have much money behind you. How'd you go about doing that? You know, when you sell food at farmers markets, you become a part of a really great community. And our home was Santa Cruz. And when you talk about uh, community, when it comes to food you're going to be really hard pressed finding a better, stronger uh, food community than Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's basic. I think it, I mean, it's the, I think it's the strongest community in Santa Cruz. I mean, you're talking about um, young farmers right out of college and uh, you know, everybody we talked to and hung out with were brewers, cheesemakers, chefs, um, farmers, you know, like everybody that we ended up, our community was all people, um, that had their hands on food uh, and, and it was, it was food that they were growing or, so or their friends were growing. Was it that community, that community you were going to, to source the, the, the yeah. money? Okay. And, and they, they knew you were taking that money out of that community and bringing it to Pittsburgh. They were cool with that. Oh no, 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 no. So I wanted to open cure there. Okay. Uh, my, my goal was to open cure somewhere in the San Francisco area. Um, but the more I got into it, um, all the other factors, you know, the personal factors came into play and I just had so many friends that lived here mm. that, you know, did what I did or made the money that I made, but they own homes. They could afford a vacation yep. to California to see me. Especially and, Pittsburgh at that time. Yeah. Was, yeah. So, you know, like, you know, I, I think I was about, I was like 27 and it was, it was more of a per, like a life decision than anything else. Um, I love and miss that community in Santa Cruz. I mean, I have really great friends that I'm talk to all the time. Um, but 
you know, realistically for me, Pittsburgh is real. I mean, I'm not saying Santa Cruz isn't real, but like I'm, I'm from like a, I'm from a rust belt town. You know, I, I grew up working construction at a younger age than I probably should have. Uh, I'm a blue collar person and I really enjoy living a blue collar life. I really do. Um, so that, so that was back to it. Yeah. Okay. So opening cure, uh, any big lessons, uh, looking back at that experience, things you did, things you would have done differently, things you did right that you, you can reflect on. Honestly, I think cure was like the hardest thing. I opening cure was one of the biggest challenges of my life. I didn't have any money. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think like <laughs> the universe put cure in my lap. I was working as a chef at this place called elements cuisine, which is no longer in existence. Um, I took that job as a challenge. Um, you know, I was struggling personally and professionally in Pittsburgh. Um, there weren't a lot of job opportunities. Uh, and some, I'd never been a chef anywhere before. I had only been a sous chef once Mm -hmm. my whole career in California. I chose, uh, to not be a sous chef. I thought that I could learn more as a cook. Mm -hmm. I was right. I think, um, and when I moved, so, uh, I was referred to the owner of the restaurant by a friend of mine. Um, it was a 380 seat restaurant downtown, right? Yeah. I, 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 I kind of want to stomp on the brakes real quick because you just said something that really just resonated with me. And that's, that was, you chose to be a cook. You never took the sous position because you thought you would learn more. And a big lesson I picked up from talking to people like yourself is never take a job for, uh, the money or the title, but take it for what you're going to learn. And that ties off of the, the Einstein quote of, don't become a man of success, become a man of value. Yeah. Uh, and it, you're, you're adding so much value by, by learning all those skills. And I mean, you want to become as valuable as possible. That's going to, that's going to be leverage for you in the future. Uh, so plan for the future. Don't plan for right now, I guess. Uh, great stuff. Sorry. Keep going. It's okay. Yeah. So I, I remember walking into my, my interview with this guy and I looked, I like, he stopped my, I stopped at the hostess stand and I was like, Hey, well, how many seats are in here? And he told me, and I was like, good luck, man. I don't think I'm your guy. And, he came, he came back to me a week or two later. Um, and in the time I was thinking like, you know what, what else am I doing right now? Like this would be a challenge if I could nail, you know, like food cost and labor cost, And if I can manage a staff that big, and if I could get some sort of accolades for that, then I feel like I will have, be able to have the confidence to open my own restaurant. Um, and that's what that restaurant gave me. It was a challenge. I didn't want to be the chef at a 380 seat restaurant. Mm-hmm. I never, I never want to do that again. Um, I took it as a challenge. I, I, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. Um, and yeah, so then I decided to open Cure. I, I leased the space um, without any money. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious, and not to make to draw this out further. I mean, you said you're good on time, right? If yeah, you go to like yeah. an hour and twenty, an hour and thirty. I'm fine. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, what was that transition like from going to a line cook uh, to kind of quickly climbing the ladder from sous to executive chef. Was that a hard pivot? Like any big lessons from that experience? You know, I, I think you learn so much by being a cook. You like, I didn't even know how prepared I was for it, you know, because when you're a middle mid level manager, um, you know, your, your focus isn't just on cooking. You know, you don't, you don't get to absorb as much, you know, you have people expect a lot out of you, I guess, Mm -hmm. you know, and as a cook, I mean, I, I just, I just felt like my goal in every kitchen was to work every station and try to try to absorb everything that I can. So in, in that process, I, you know, I asked a lot of questions about what a sous chef did. You know, I got involved. I acted like a sous chef Mm -hmm. when I was a cook and I acted like a chef when I was a sous chef. Um, 
and I don't, you know, for me, it was like, I, I was so frustrated with my professional career because at this point, you know, I had worked at, you know, some of the world's best restaurants and I thought I conquered my own butcher shop situation and I wasn't getting close to that. Um, so it was like, you know, if I can't, I need to find it for myself, mm-hmm. you know, so I need to find a way to enjoy and grow as in a professional, even in this non-perfect environment. Right. So you go from Monterey, Santa Cruz, San Francisco, Big Sur to Pittsburgh. Like you can't expect it to be the same. I just had to like refocus my energy and, you know, get some challenge myself differently basically is what I had to do. Um, and the moment I decided to do that, the moment I became a part of a community, the moment I wanted to work harder. Um, and that, that's definitely what drove me to want to open. That is what made me want to open. I've always want to open cure, but after my experience with the butcher shop, I was really hesitant on jumping into anything. Um, but like that experience at elements definitely gave me confidence and that's what it's all about. So, Let's dive into Cure. Okay, so what was you said that was the hardest thing you ever did, right? Yeah, opening Cure. What was the hardest thing about that? Um, I I didn't have any money, so I I a friend of mine from California gifted me twenty four thousand dollars. That's a nice gift. Um, what was like a tax thing? <laughs> um, and she's fantastic, and she's been super helpful to us. And, and I've we're, we're we've paid her off against her, but anyways. Um, <laughs> I had another person who was uh, someone that helped us financially in California that loaned me $10,000. Um, I refinanced a house that we were, that we bought for, we bought the house for like 42,000 bucks. We refied it. And I think I pulled $13,000 out of that. So what are we talking about? Like 53 or 56 or something like that. Yeah. So I had $56,000 to open a restaurant, right? I signed a lease. Um, the space that we're in, I, I mean, this was the dining room, but I gutted it. And, um, I spent a whole bunch of time, unemployed i turned my garage into a wood shop and i went and dismantled a barn and i like milled all of this wood i refinished every table every table base i refinished every chair um in the time that i was waiting to get in into the space uh, and then myself and uh three of my best friends um built the space out okay. um i had to pay a plumber um, but I did a lot of plumbing work. Good to have family in the construction business too, right? Uh, yeah, but they don't do that type of construction. Okay. Um, I had to pay an electrician and I had to pay a plumber. But um, myself, my friend Brandon, my friend Aaron, um, my friend Jason uh, made this all happen, right? So, And then uh, at a moment where I was basically out of money, yeah, um, I had learned that the culinary school that I went to was closing. So I called the dean uh, chef hunt. Um, and he was a customer of ours at elements. And I, I said, Hey, I heard you're closing. And he's like, yeah, I was like, well, I'm opening a restaurant. I need, I need equipment. I hadn't literally, oh, man. I want to say that I had no, <laughs> I want I want to say that I had no money. Um, I was kind of at a standstill with construction and, uh, he was like, yeah, come on down, man. He's like, the auction company is coming in two days. So you called it the perfect timing. Oh Wow. So I went down and literally put my name. I went down with a a truck with a lift gate on it and basically took everything I needed to open a restaurant. I got all of my cook, my cook line, all of my refrigeration, um, all the plates and glasses that we opened with, um, a huge amount of shit, all the pots and pans. 
And then I'm here. I am out of money, and I'm trying to get loans from banks. But banks are like, you have no collateral. <laughs> um, so then a light went off, and I was like, wait a minute. I have collateral. I have a garage full of restaurant equipment. So I estimated it to be the value of thirty-two thousand dollars, and I talked a bank into leasing that back to me. So I got a check for thirty thousand dollars from a bank. Wow! So, so now I, you're up to eighty-six. I'm up to eighty-six thousand dollars. So I I use that to pretty much build out the restaurant. I have twelve hundred dollars in my bank account the week before we open right so i'm looking at it like we could either open on new year's eve and i know that we can do 90 covers or we can open like the second week of january and i'll be screwed right but i so <laughs> wait we, why i'm not sure why would you be screwed if you waited well this neighborhood was not what it is now okay. um, i really didn't have a name in the city of pittsburgh really no one knew who i was i had no advertising dollars nobody even knew what i was doing over here and you were not coming to this part of town to eat the food that i was cooking or have any sort of dining experience um it was a total risk so i thought all right if i can open up on new year's eve i know that i'll be able to have enough money to make the first first or second okay. payroll you know I, I, but i you know it was like nine thousand mm-hmm. dollars i i could make in one day right um, so I called my friend Jason because he likes to pretend he's a, he's a baller. He's got one of them <laughs> black cards. And uh, I said, Jay, I need you to come to Pittsburgh. Uh, and I need to use your, I need to use that credit card of yours. So we spent about f- almost $20,000 on just like all the random things that we needed to open the restaurant. Um, open on New Year's Eve, um, with $1,200 in our bank account. Wow. Um, so this is like. With no liquor license, we were BYOB. Um, the dining room pretty much looks, looked the way it looked, except for we had no bar. The menu was on a chalkboard. The kitchen was completely different. Every plate, every glass, everything that we you see and touch at the table right now was something bought at a secondhand shop um, or given to me. Um, and the, so that was really hard, but the hardest part, right, was making it work you know it was actually coming in here every day building the team cultivating the right culture um having no money paying the people that i owed money back to um that was really really hard but honestly it's probably the smartest way to open a restaurant so one really quick question um when you got that equipment from the school did they give it to you they oh oh good great question so i i i picked out everything i want i needed and um I was like, well, here's the thing, chef. Um, I'm pretty fucking broke. <laughs> and he goes, well, I'll tell you what. He's like, why don't you just make a donation to the school? I don't care what it is. And I, I think I had $2,400 or something like that or three grand in the bank account. Yeah. And I, I wrote him a check for half of whatever I had. I think it was either twelve dollars or $1,500. And he was like, go for it. Oh, man. It's all you. Wow. That, man. I mean, the only thing I can think of hearing that story is just the power of not taking no for an answer like no is not an option like get creative as soon as you say it's not possible the part of your mind that gets creative shuts off it, it your mind will save energy it, it's like a default mode that's the save the save energy it will shut off and it will stop trying to figure out how to do it but if you don't accept no or if it's not possible as an option then your mind will just work and you'll get creative and you'll call people and you'll oh i can the, the school's closing maybe they can help me and like there's so many possibilities yep. where you can find the help if you just get creative and look for it it's it's such a great lesson that you just share with us um I'm thinking I'm going to make this a two-part interview because we got a little bit more to go on and I can get two episodes out of it, so why not? So 
<laughs> um, we're gonna stop it here, and uh, we'll this the so this is going live. Don't worry, guys. Just wait a day, and we'll pick up where we left off. It will be worth it. Um, and I'm just gonna. How am I gonna do this? Uh, I'm gonna stop this recording, and I'm gonna start a new one. All right, guys. All right, so uh, a little impromptu two-part episode. Uh, as soon as Chef said, uh, if, "If you're worried about time, don't don't worry about time." It was like game on. I was like, "All right, man, I'll I'll let you go," and I let him go. And man, so much value is just pouring out of this episode. And I, I knew this was going to happen as soon as I took the podcast on the road. The being there in person in front of these people, uh, m- my genuine interest to learn from them. People don't turn that away so there might be a few more of these two-part episodes out there i i rather go deep i rather really get to know somebody uh and get that good stuff and we gotta work for it so i don't want to rush them if they want to go if they have all day i'll let them hell i'll do three episodes with one chef or one restaurant owner if it means getting that good content so i hope you guys don't mind this uh and man talk about some some great advice in today's conversation we're already we're already just halfway through too so it's gonna get good the the big things for me guys to take from the first half of this conversation is uh taking a job for what you're gonna learn surrounding yourself with people who are gonna push you uh to to drive you to become the best version of yourself possible and obviously uh the just the idea of uh starting where you can getting creative and not taking no for an answer like you will attract onto yourself the means, the resources to do whatever it is you want to do. As long as you get creative and you, you put your nose down and you, you find solutions. Don't quit. Keep showing up, get creative, find those solutions. Uh, can't say it enough. And chef's story is such a great story of that. And most people will say, well, I can't do that. Like, well, fuck you. Yes, you can go out there, surround yourself with amazing people, become a person of value, uh, get friends, and the universe will provide. You'll find that there's just ways that things just happen. Um, but you got to put the work in. It isn't just. It doesn't just happen. First, you got to put the work in, and you only get out what you put in. So, uh, awesome stuff. A uh, great example of that today. And uh, I think that's good for now. Uh, before I let you go, just a reminder: if you're liking, if you if you're liking these interviews and you want more of them, uh, let me know who you want to hear from. Shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, or tell me what you're struggling with. I'll get an expert on the show. Keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. And the best way to support this show is to share this resource. If you know anybody who's truly passionate about the hospitality industry and you, you want to serve them, there's no better way to serve somebody than with knowledge and inspiration. And that's what we're here to do at Restaurant Unstoppable, to empower restaurant operators with knowledge and uh, recommendations and mentorship. So share this resource. Uh, it's not just for people who are getting started in the industry. It's for everyone. Uh, so please share this episode and share this knowledge. Uh, that's all for today. Thanks for sticking around this long. We'll be back on Friday with the wrap up. So just make sure you tune in, uh, in a couple days and yeah, until next time, peace out. Oh yeah. And I'm, I'm really sorry about using the curse word there in the outro, but I, I just got really, really excited. So I apologize.